Okay. Hello, Rich. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Shane, good to be here. Yes. I'm very excited for our conversation today. I, um, you and I, you know, have an interesting story of, of how we got connected. Uh, you and my father are part of a cycling crew, except that uh, you cycle with your arms and not with your legs, <laughs> which is quite extraordinary. And it's part of the reason why, you know, I wanted to have you on today is that, you know, you're an athlete and a speaker and an advocate and a recreational therapist and all this after, you know, suffering, a, you know, spinal cord injury a number of years ago that left you paralyzed from the waist down, I, I, I think, right? Is, is that correct? Yeah, uh, it's actually from the armpits down, uh, which, oh. which, you know, a lot of people don't think it makes a significant difference, but having that trunk stability for everyday tasks as well as sport uh, is a significant change, big difference. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, yeah. you know, I, I can't even imagine what it's like, but I guess that's why we're here. So how about we start off with just, uh, could you tell a bit of the story of, of what happened during that accident? Yeah, sure thing. So this, this goes back uh, 1992. Uh, yesterday, uh, June 29th, was actually my 29th year anniversary wow. of the, uh, the motor vehicle accident. So uh, on this particular day, um, well, I'll go back a little bit in time prior to the accident day. Um, I was an active guy. I had just spent my season out West uh, teaching skiing and then living with some Aussies out there feeling guilty for not you know, going on with my career, but I wasn't certain what I wanted to do. So that's why I took the time. I went out West. I came back in the spring of 92. I had just registered um, for an architecture program, like drafting program design. Uh, that was kind of the only thing I applied myself in school wise, other than gym class. So it, uh, it seemed like a, a smart route. Um, my motorcycle was my means of transportation that spring. Uh, my best friend for over 10 years had a bike as well. And that became kind of our, our springtime love. Uh, every day we'd go riding after work and, and the evenings and then, you know, a few long road trips. But yeah. uh, June, 20, June 29th, I was lifeguarding at one of the pools uh, in the city of Niagara Falls where I, where I grew up and, and at the time was residing. And I went to his apartment and from there we're going to return back to Niagara Falls. So from St. Catharines to Niagara Falls, you have options. You can go over the lower canal bridges or you take the QEW and you go up over the skyway um, and, and clear the water that way. Mm -hmm. And we were hungry or, or we wanted to go fast or something. So we said, let's take the highway today. But just before we got over um, and then entered the highway, I said, let's pull over on the shoulder. Today's your lucky day. You get to try my bike. You know, we, we had swapped bikes before in the parking lot. I, my, my interests were more of the racing style motorcycle. Um, I like to go fast. I like that position to me. And it just made more sense. Yeah. Uh, and I had a match, matching full face racing helmet, thankfully. Um, and Jeff was always interested in the Harley kind of image and the Harley route. So he had a, a I think it was a Yamaha Maxim 400. So mm -hmm. a, a smaller touring bike, but that upright sitting style. And uh, we pulled over on the shoulder. We switched motorcycles, and I actually said to him, "We should uh, we should switch helmets too, more for the image than anything. It looks kind of silly, you on my bike with your." He had the Harley helmet, so that little, not much more than a bicycle type cap thing. Right. Uh, <laughs> so, and and thankfully, he said, "No, don't worry about it," because that decision uh, saved my life. Absolutely. Oh yeah, wow. We ended up pulling onto the highway, and usually I'd, I'd move over to the left lane be a little more aggressive or at least, you know, keep up with the fastest traffic. 
But uh, this day I, I decided to get his bike on the highway as quick as I could, and I stayed in the right lane and I waited for him to catch up. June 29th, the beginning of the Canada Day long weekend, so traffic was starting to get heavy and started going up the side of the Skyway, um, St. Catherine's side towards Niagara Falls, and I couldn't see him anywhere. So I couldn't see him in my mirrors. So I slowed down a little bit in my lane and I started looking over my shoulder. And the witnesses tell me, because I have no recollection, they say about the second or third time, I turned my head to look for my friend, the traffic that I was following, which was a, a Jeep or a pickup truck, it was a full-size vehicle, enough that it obstructed the view in front of them or I wasn't, certainly wasn't paying attention. So as soon as I turned my head, that vehicle had swerved out of the right lane because there was a broken down car stopped by an emergency phone. Mm. Behind him was a dump truck pulling a flatbed trailer with a big track, uh, backhoe tractor on it. And uh, I had my head turned for those two seconds. And as I said, the, the vehicle in front of me swerved out of the lane. I didn't even see the dump truck sitting there. At this point, he had stopped so abruptly he put skid marks on the uphill side of the, up, the uphill side of the bridge, um, and I traveled into the back of his trailer. He was almost stopped or nearly stopped, and I, I was going at probably 90 kilometers an hour. I uh, hit the back of the trailer. Consequently, I flew off the motorcycle, hit the tractor that was on the trailer, bounced around a little, and then fell half on the trailer, half on the road. Um, my Jeez. last recollection was wondering just where my friend was. So I have no memory of the actual accident. This is witness, police report, and my friend's recollection. So the result was I, I damaged some, uh, some of my cervical vertebrae in my neck, but no damage to the actual cord itself. Um, but I could no longer feel my legs. I was telling them to take my helmet off because of a lot of blood from my head. Um, and they rushed me to the hospital. And the result was I have a T4 spinal cord injury. So the fourth seraph sorry, thoracic vertebrae. Um, so you have your cervical vertebrae in your neck and then you just count down the bumps uh, in your back, you know, one, two, three, four, which is right around the nipples on my chest. Mm -hmm. uh, my sensation stops just above that. So hmm. life changed really quick that day. Yeah. So Jesus. Okay. So you say that you had no recollection of the accident, but you said that you, um, you were awake or conscious like on the road before they took you to the hospital. Is that correct? I was, yeah, I was, I was asking questions. Uh, I was instructing them to take my helmet off. Fortunately, there was a physician who had stopped who witnessed the, the accident and the scene stopped and made sure that nobody really moved me uh, as much as they, they could. You know, they had to get me off the trailer and then eventually get me on a spinal board. They rushed me to St. Catherine's General Hospital and realized it's not a trauma center. They couldn't do anything for me. So they put me back in the ambulance and took me to Hamilton General Hospital. And that's where they, did their assessment and, and called my, my mother and, and informed her and then moved forward at that point. It was, it was sketchy and scary the first couple of days. They didn't know the extent of my injuries and, and the, the possibility of a, a very severe head injury, obviously. Um, and that's yeah. why I say the helmet, the helmet saved my life. Uh, top of the line, chewy racing helmet. And it took the, the brunt of the initial impact when my head hit the trailer. And I have a scar that goes all the way across my hairline. Oh uh, yeah. It's about an inch below my hairline now. At the time, it was at my hairline. <laughs> uh, so it goes all the way across my forehead from where the helmet actually shattered into my head, kind of peeled back some skin. So it was a, it was a bloody mess, but they, they obviously stitched it up well. And um, I think my memory's a little affected, but other than that, I'm, I'm so fortunate not to have you know, a, a severe brain injury. Yeah. And so how, how old are you when that happened? 
I had just turned 21 years old uh, in May, so a month before. So at 21, you know, you don't think this stuff happens, even though with my lifeguard training and, and knowledge of spinal cord injuries and, and risk of this sort of thing. Um, yeah, it's always happening to other people. Yeah. Other people, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's crazy, right? And, and what a life-changing moment, right? That just happens in a split second that you couldn't have, you know, foreseen or avoided. And it was just, just like that. I mean, what, how, what's the, what do you do the, for the, like the following few weeks? Like what happens? So, uh, as I was rushed or sorry, as I went into Hamilton general hospital, um, obviously my condition went up and down. I ended up from being prone and then having breathing difficulties, plus no other real broken bones, but a lot of soft tissue damage. Mm. Um, I ended up having pneumonia while I was in ICU. One of my lungs collapsed. So they had to do emergency surgery, sticking a tube in there to drain That's fluid fun. and help me breathe. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. another scar added to the body. Um, and then, and then, you know, they, they moved me around the hospital from the ICU to the burn trauma unit. Um, they had to conduct surgery on my spine. So I would say if this accident happened 10 years earlier, um, one of the things that they would have done was strap you to a bed and, and they rotate the entire bed for months, you know, while your spine and the, the area around the damaged cord would heal, um, without you doing more damage to the cord itself. Now they, they do surgery. So they'll, they'll stabilize the spine with, um, they're called Harrington rods mm -hmm. and they, they just kind of wire them in. Uh, they're about 10 inches long, just above my injury and below my injury. Um, and it stabilizes a spine that allows you to, and to get up when you're able uh, to sit up in the hospital wearing a proper body brace and, and all those things. So that was, uh, the surgery was, was an interesting part too, because that kind of knocks you out. Uh, you think you're kind of foggy in your brain. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in the back of your mind, because I've had injury from sport and, and, you know, other people that get injured, but everybody heals. You always heal. So at this point, you're thinking, I know the doctors say you'll never walk again, um, but you still in the back of your mind think, well, there's a chance. I'm, I, they don't know me. Right. Yeah. yeah and because you always hear of like, you know, certain success stories and things like that. And as you say, yeah. when especially when you're young, you do think you're invincible and you're like, well, I, you know, I'll figure out a way or something like that. And then, yeah. so, but the doctors were telling you from the beginning, they were like, this is, this is bad. Like you're not going to walk again. Yeah, I mean, uh, they label it either incomplete or a complete type spinal cord injury. Mm -hmm. So if it's an in incomplete injury, there's some messages that are still able to, to go through the spinal cord. So usually they'll tell, they'll be able to determine that maybe from um, sensation. So they'll do hot and cold touch throughout your body. Do you feel this? Do you feel that? And, and right away, if it's, if it's no, 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 um, it looks more like a complete type injury. Right. And then with, with more time, with more assessment, you know, if you get your bladder back, if you get your bowel uh, control back that also are indicators it's a more incomplete injury but for me nothing nothing was changing uh in those first few days and then those first few weeks and then those first few months and then after a year and you just kind of you, you keep trying but as time goes on you start to realize i guess this is probably going to be it yeah um, i mean I, I don't even know how you process that you know it's the irony is maybe two weeks before i had my actual crash I was speaking with uh, one of the girls I was lifeguarding with. I don't know if we saw somebody in the pool or somebody going by the pool in a wheelchair, 
you know, but we've been in the conversation of what if, what if something like this happened to you? And I had, I had responded saying, pull the plug. Like I would not want to live my life from a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just, I looked at everything I did and, and most of the roles I had, my social roles, my, my friends, my family, you know, uh, my siblings, I was, I was the athlete. I was the big brother who was able to do all these things. Um, I was the guy who, who never turned down a dare and, and excelled very well in any sport I tried. Yeah. So to me, having my body was, was essential. Um, huh. And then it happened. And I think your view, once the option is taken away, you know, when, when you're not looking at it, like, yeah, would I want that life? No, no, I wouldn't. Um, once you're in it, it's like, okay, now do I live or, or am I done? Right. Um, and I think, I think the, the severity of my accident also helps with, with the coping, you know, in the sense that I'm lucky to be alive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the other option uh, doesn't look so good compared to being paralyzed. Yeah. So, and I, I didn't have all the answers. So I thought, you know what, the next step of, of my recovery after the acute hospital was going into a rehab hospital where most people will stay there for months hmm. and you relearn, you relearn your body, you relearn how to do everything. And I thought that would be the place I could really gauge and get answers on, on what the lifestyle was and, and if I could really handle it. Right. Cause you have to basically adapt to a new way of living, right? Completely. Oh. Everything changes. Everything changes. Yeah. Especially, you know, uh, again, one of the, one of the things, not only uh, not having a brain injury, but also still having function in my hands, like not mm. doing damage to my neck. So that's, that's a, big sense of independence and, and freedom, being able to lift yourself out of your wheelchair, brush your teeth, comb your hair, figure out a way to get your clothes on now without your body cooperating, but you still have that option. Right. Um, so it was, it was eye opening to me, especially at rehab when you see other people and their struggles and where they're at and kind of where you sit in the whole scheme of having an injury, you know, uh, Shidok McMaster rehab where I did my rehab, we had shared rooms also with uh, stroke patients. Hmm. So uh, there was another young guy who, who has come, become one of my best friends with a spinal cord injury, but there's another elderly gentleman who had a stroke um, and he lost his ability to verbally communicate with his wife and his kids. And all he could say was yes hmm. to everything that one word. So I, I saw the struggles of, of other people there. And to me, that really helped put things in context and, and, just keep my view um, where it should be, you know, valuing the things I still did have. Yeah. It, no. Cause I mean, yeah, as you say, when, when you go into that place and you see what could have been um, it certainly will put it in, in context of like, well, th- there's a, you know, huge reality shift and a lot of things change and, you know, you've lost a lot of functionality, but also you didn't lose some functionality and you can still move your arms and your head and, you know, feed yourself and do, uh, do, uh, well, at least start learning to do things autonomously again. Um, and, and yet there are other people that couldn't. Right. And so I'm sure that was actually quite a good thing for you to see. Um, in, in, in that, just that sense of not that it's nice that it happened to those people, but just that, that, you know, reality sort of hits differently. Right. Yeah. 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 So, it's, it's a, it's a visual reminder of, yeah. of the what ifs and the what could be. So it, it definitely helped. And did you also see how people approach treatment differently when you were in the rehab center? I mean, not treatment rehab. Uh, 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's a the coping the coping mechanisms that other people would adopt and and the time it would take some people versus others. You know, some people are just fortunate to have a positive attitude and it just carries them through. Um, and others, it's it's a struggle. So, I think a big thing too was was support, um, mm-hmm. having the support, and I think. That was part of the reason why I chose Hamilton versus Toronto for a rehab center. If something happens to you in, in Ontario, it's, it's really Toronto, Hamilton, or Ottawa is where you'd go to do your rehab. So for some people, that's a big move away from home. And then it's, that means a lot of people can't visit. But right. Hamilton's still a good driving distance. So, you know, friends um, from my social circle, of course, my family could come visit. And uh, that was a push for me to, to be better. Yeah, no, for sure. It, it makes a huge difference, right? If you have that social support in place, because if you don't, then uh, I imagine you just feel all the more alone and, you know, isolated and that it, it makes it so much worse. Um, not, yeah, not, and not, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, and it's kind of funny, you know, people don't think uh, you have two different kinds of visitors. You have the ones that really feel bad for you and they're, they're just almost awkward. Mm. Uh, in, in, in their emotions in the room. And then you got the other friends that maybe it's just a way of coping or just them being themselves. You know, they come in and, and throw stuff at you in the bed and, and say, come on, man, or take your chair and push it away and, and just right. be like the old friendship. Make jokes. Um, and make jokes, yeah. 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 Make, make light of, of the situation. And that matched my humor. So that worked well for me. And, and those people were valuable in my life at that time. Yeah. No, and that's huge, right? And because, I mean, I'm just imagining how I would respond to going to visit a friend in in that situation. And it's really hard because, first of all, I mean, what do you say? Is there anything even to say? Do you just go and be there with them? Just spend time, as you say, just, you know, make talk of, I mean, make jokes, just have a, not, not undermining the severity of the situation, but also not just being completely sucked in and making it worse for the person who is, you know, going through it by adding all of your emotional baggage onto it. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, that's, I don't know, I guess, you know, hope, hopefully I don't have to ever find out one day, but um, I guess you don't really know until you're in that situation how, how it's going to go, right? Um, but so how long were you in that rehab center for? Oh boy. I think it was, uh, about two months, two and a half months. Okay. Uh, which, which they say is very fast <laughs> now, yeah. nowadays it's, uh, I mean, back then it wasn't uncommon for people to be in the hospital for six months. If you had uh, a higher level injury, uh, cer- mm-hmm. cervical injury well over a year. Sure. And I think that's, that was valuable time for, for a lot of people because it really gave you time to really get the confidence with your own body get your equipment sorted out, what kind of wheelchair you're going to be needing, manual power, and also things like renovations at home. So you have somewhere where you're discharged to, you know, if, if there's one big change between then and now it's, it's that, that length of stay in the hospitals. Now people are pushed through so quick. Mm. You go home, you go home to an environment that's not accessible. People that haven't emotionally accepted anything, you're still coping. You don't have the skills in your wheelchair yet to, to get into those environments. Sure. So you, you kind of go home with a negative attitude. Whereas in my time, I was ready to go home. Uh, I had an apartment, accessible apartment that was found for me, um, a subsidized unit and a little complex. So it gave me my nice. independence right away. Um, 
and it was again accessible so I could wheel in with my with my wheelchair uh, you know not not a shower but I didn't necessarily need that I, I prided myself on having my hand function I wanted to to lift and transfer when I could so mm-hmm. my rule has always been less is more you know the less the less changes I can make in my life um, medically with with this spinal cord injury maybe the more whole I'm going to feel or maybe the more like my old self I would feel and did you uh, find that to be true yeah absolutely you know drive yeah. even something like driving people say why don't you get a van and a lift and and uh, I know so many people that have that equipment and, and if you need it it's it's wonderful stuff but if you have options you know I'd rather transfer into a regular driver's seat take my wheel wheelchair apart beside me and I either put it in the back seat or in the passenger seat mm-hmm. um, and and I find that a lot faster. It gets me physical exercise, keeps my range of motion. I have to move, you know, it gives me a little more freedom. Yeah. So, and also cost, you know, to install hand controls into a vehicle costs you a thousand dollars to have a van modified. It's going to cost you $30,000. Jeez. So yeah, big differences. <laughs> so what are the, I mean, just a quick question, like how did the hand controls work in a car? I've, I mean, I've never seen one before. Yeah, so generally it has to be, I mean, most cars now are automatic transmission. There isn't too much stick on the market. Um, So as long as it's automatic transmission, they're actually uh, two solid lines that run down under the steering column and they clamp on to the top of the brake and the Mm -hmm. gas pedals. And they come up and then from one handle out the left side of the steering wheel, um, I hold that handle and that works brake and gas. So I push it in, it works brake. When I push it down, it works gas. Hmm. And then all the steering, all the steering is generally done with the right hand. Okay. So do you, you don't have to go for your license again or anything. You do. Yeah. Oh, you, you, have do? To, you, you certainly have to show that you're safe with the hand controls and cause there's other things with your body. You don't have the ability without your trunk to hmm. rotate. So if I want to turn to look in behind me, that's the most I can turn without my trunk rotating. Right. You know? So, uh, using them, being able to use the mirrors, being able to find how to, how to use your blind spots now with your limited range stability, sitting in the seat, going around a corner. Cause you just want to right that G force all over, <laughs> you know, again, without that trunk, even with a seatbelt, it's uh, yeah. all these things you, you don't think of, but when you start driving, you're like, okay, I, I got to do this differently. Yeah. I mean, there's so much that you don't think about needing to change. Right. I mean, even just from a, like what comes to mind now is like the, just the height of counters in your house and mm. cupboards and, you know, clothes and things like, well, you can't reach certain heights. And so all of a sudden that's got to change. So things have got to be down, you know, at, at an appropriate level and tables and well, I guess tables for the most part are okay. Some high ones, I guess would be a problem, but yeah, there's just uh, so much that you don't think about. Yeah, surprisingly, a lot of restaurant tables, just because the the width or the depth of them, uh, you can't fit underneath them. Mm. So it's not a matter of them being too high. It's almost that they're too low for for your lap and your knees to to get right underneath. Uh, Yeah, I see. Don't even think about it. (laughs) I didn't even think about that. So I'm I'm six feet tall when I was standing. So I I have fairly long legs and, and limbs. So to be able to sit in my wheelchair my general seating height is, is higher than most people. So I may am able to reach a lot and mm. um, you know, upper cupboard, like lower level of upper cupboards and, and things across the counter or across the table. Um, yeah. But uh, having that seating height also means I can't fit underneath a lot of things. So there's a benefit to being lower and there's a benefit to being higher. 
<laughs> but so, yeah, in, in terms of your, like, um, you know, your torso, uh, capabilities, right? Cause you said that it doesn't, your trunk, I think you called it, it doesn't move much. So how do you stay upright? What muscles is that? What muscles are you using for that? Or does that have to do with the rods that they put in as well? So the rods provide stability. Um, you know, one of the things I've done for, for my work is, is doing a lot of seating with people. So uh, when you sit and you don't have sensation and you're sitting for up to, you know, 17 hours a day, most days, uh, you can create something like a pressure sore. Mm. So because you don't have sensation in a lot of areas, when you're sitting in your chair and you get uncomfortable, you'll, you'll shift, you'll know, and you'll shift uh, to allow that, that blood circulation to move again without those, those reminders or that sensation, you can sit for hours and hours and not realize that you're actually cutting off the circulation to the tissue under right. your bum, usually where the bony areas are. Um, so especially with like muscle atrophy, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Less, less tissue. So the bony prominences really stick out. So you, you have to sit on a custom cushion. There's all different types of cushions on the market. You have to find which one works best for you for stability and also pressure relief. Uh, how you transfer on it, what makes it easier to lift it out of the car, the weight of it is all different. You know, air, gel, different foams, different honeycomb types of mixtures. Um, and then there's also customized backrests. Mm. So the, the backrest is what gives you that proper stability. And truly, it has to be within, you know, two, three millimeters of height and, and angle for it to really keep me at my, my neutral position. So I, I kind of sit neutral as if I kind of relate to people. If you were sitting on a medicine ball mm -hmm. and then doing all your activities on that medicine ball with your feet off the ground, that's how right. much stability I have. So if I, if I just put my hand up here, you know, this hand is here as well. If I move this arm this much, that's enough to tip me and I can't recover. Hmm. So there's, there's, there's absolutely no core muscles below, below my armpit. So I'm just, like like weebles wobble <laughs> but wow. i will fall down so yeah. I, mean, I mean yeah you can just stretch your arm out and that'll tip you over yeah if you don't catch yeah. yourself obviously if you don't catch yourself so yeah, you hold yeah. the other side and now with with my daughters obviously you know you think you got everything figured out and then you have two little kids and and they show you all these new little things you got to learn again yeah so just to function with them safely you know to hold them to tie their shoes with two hands to do anything with two hands is, is difficult hmm but uh that's another that's another chapter yeah <laughs> we're not oh, there yet <laughs> yeah but i mean so okay so you know after that you know first few months right and, and you're starting to get back into being um autonomous and you know do things by yourself and you, you're starting to relearn how to live again right um what what kind of what what's the mental emotional aspect at that point so for me, the big questions were obviously um, relationship, girlfriend, sexuality, uh, and sports. Mm. <laughs> you know, those, yeah. those were the biggies for me. It was just, what could I do? What was it going to be like? Um, am I going to enjoy it? Are people going to look at me the same way? And, and all these questions I had. So when I started the rehab process, they had a, a magazine in almost every room in the physio gyms. Um, sometimes up in the cafeteria. So it was a magazine called Sports and Spokes. And to me, it was like the wheelchair athlete Bible of the time. Mm. 
you know, I, I just, I, I went straight for the magazine. I flipped every page. I looked at all the different equipment um, just to see kind of what was out there. What, what was my life going to be, mm-hmm. you know? And, and so those pictures alone were enough to show me, wow, there's actually a lot of people doing stuff already. Cause I had no idea. Um, I was, I didn't really pay attention to that, that group in society. Yeah. You know? So I had no idea. Spinal cord injury. What did that mean to me? I just thought, you're going to be in a van and, and you're going to do lots of reading. And of course the doctors tell your family and, and, and yourself as well, that you, you probably won't do those things, same things you did before, like the skiing and the skydiving and then the swimming and, you know, you, you take it all out. <laughs> and I go, okay, well. It's a nice I, message. I, yeah. It's, it's, it raises a lot of questions. Yeah. So to me, when I, when I saw this magazine um, and then part of the rehab as well, you, you work with a, a physiotherapist who does your wheelchair mobility. Mm -hmm. Um, so to me, that was, that was essential. You know, I was like, I was like, I got in trouble and I kind of changed the policy at the hospital because (laughs) the nurse, the nurses always gave me heck in the evenings because I'd be up in the hallway and uh, I'd be doing wheelies. Mm. And the rule was you only do wheelies in, in physio because it's safe. We don't want you to fall up on the hallway and then bump your head or something. And I, my attitude was like, you people, this is my life. This, yeah. is, this is where it's going. I'm doing wheelies all day. <laughs> yeah, good you know, for I, you. I, I want to figure this out. And I had an incredible uh, physiotherapist, Marie Decker, who, you know, she was old school. And then she'd take me outstairs, outside on these concrete stairs and, and actually spot me to go down in a wheelie, these concrete stairs, mm. um, which nowadays they would never do for liability, you know. <laughs> but, <laughs> but at the time, that was, that was key for me to feel cool mm. to feel young to feel aggressive to feel like i had a little bit of control of my life again yeah. so between the the manual wheelchair skills seeing the magazines and, uh, and all the athletic photos um we also had a recreation therapist who was on mat leave and there was a student covering for her and he found out about a wheelchair tennis program at mohawk college mm. he said is anybody interested to uh to go see what this sport is about and of course i was hands yeah hands up right away let's go um my dog's barking. No worries. <laughs> you got to wait. You got to wait. Um, you can go check it out if you want. No, no, no. She's oh, fine. Okay. <laughs> She's fine. She's wondering what's going on here. That's all. Um, Cute. So we, uh, yeah, so we, we booked uh, the accessible van from the hospital, the accessible bus, and we took it to the courts. And I remember, I remember pulling in on the bus in the parking lot and I hadn't even gotten off the bus yet. And... <laughs> Her nails make a lot of noise in the floor. I'll tell you, I'll tell you this story again. Come here. Come okay. No, don't worry. It's all good. What kind of dog is she? So I have a chocolate lab. Nice. She's 11 and a half. Uh, she had cancer and she has cancer now. Hmm. So she's in her, she's in her last stage right now, but she's, she's wonderful. She bounced back after, after some surgery the first time and, and she's great. Yeah. Um, no, dogs are the best, man. I got two as well. I got two little yeah. ones, uh, oh, yeah. but they're they're the best. Um, yeah, and it's really cool how they're now integrating animals into various you know rehabs and recoveries for people because it's yeah you know makes a huge difference. Well, at that the clinic my wife and I opened, uh, she's been there since we opened the front the front door. Uh, mm-hmm. She was a puppy at the same time we we started the business, so she's become a therapy dog to hundreds of our clients over the last ten years. Amazing. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely incredible. And a great breed for it. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Fortunately, because she's a lab and she's so social and, and obedient, um, a lot of people think she's actual therapy dog. Oh, so okay. it allows us to sneak her into hotels often. So she travels <laughs> with us a lot <laughs> without the proper proper paperwork. Oh, yeah, the, the vest, a lot of you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but fair enough. Yeah, so sorry, you were saying you, you pulled up to the courts, right? So I was, I was, oh, you got to stop. <laughs> really? Now you're all excited? You got to wait, okay? Go lay down. Go lay down. You have to go wait. So... We had, uh, we had, we had pulled up in the courts, um, beside the courts and I was still in the bus looking out the windows, waiting my turn to, to come down the big ramp. And to me, that was, that was a tough day because when you're, when you're the guy coming down the ramp and the lights are on and the beeping is going, that's when you realize, okay, this is different. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's, I didn't want to be that guy. I wanted to be the guy that was getting out of the Monte Carlo going around the back, opening his trunk, taking his fluorescent pink wheelchair uh, or tennis wheelchair out of the trunk, clicking the wheels together, transferring in, and then going on the court, swearing and smashing balls. Right. Like and, uh, and sure enough, that's what I saw that night. You know, it was, it was guys and they were competitive athletes mm. on the court. It was, uh, it was a slightly different game because you're allowed two bounces in wheelchair tennis. The advanced players obviously are paying at the baseline um, so you, there's not room for two bounces, like, unless you're doing a great drop shot or something. Yeah. Um, but for the beginner players, it's essential to have that time to get to the ball and, and make a good shot back. So it was, that night was, was life-changing for me. Um, just seeing people live a normal life, driving regular vehicles with hand controls, you know, uh, just talking smack on the court and, and playing to an athletic level that, that I could respect. Yeah. Uh, even though in my mind, it was still a, wheelchair sport you know it, it took a while to kind of grasp that wheelchair sport is like sport you know people are, are working just as hard uh it's just as competitive it's even more of a financial investment uh the attitude and the competitiveness and the athleticism needed is is the same as anybody standing so um, yeah if not more because there's so much more, more you got to overcome right and, and yeah. learn to do differently particularly for someone who's been an athlete and knows how to or knew how to use their body athletically and now you essentially have to relearn how to do all those things so that's a tremendous amount of you know like learning and progress that you got it that you or any of the people there that had to do to reach that high level of competitiveness which is amazing right and and i can totally understand why that would be a, a huge inspiration because you got to see that oh people can live right and yeah. live the way that you wanted to live not yeah. just live as a sort of person in society, but actually be active and be an athlete and drive cool cars and do cool shit and, you know, be a person that happens to just sort of be in a, in a wheelchair, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's, yeah, and it, was just, it worked out great because just a few weeks after that, uh, that witnessing of the tennis was my time to do my um, prescription for my own wheelchair for my future. Mm. Um, so of course my new consideration was I learned that for every day wheeling, I need to have my wheels nice and tight and straight up and down, but for sport and athletics, I need to have my wheels on, on more of an angle mm. to give me that stability and allow the chair to turn uh, a lot quicker. Turning, yeah. so, so I ordered an extra axle for my wheelchair and that was it for the first couple of years. If I went to go play a sport, I'd swap the axles out and I'd feel like I was in a completely different chair. 
Hmm. Um, night, night and day are the difference. Right. I mean, I, I guess like it, you need that, right? Because a sort of regular road chair or something, I don't know if it's called that, but like a road chair would um, be very limiting, right? In terms of m like quick Sports mobility sport. and this stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what kind of sports did you get into? Cause I mean, I know now you're doing triathlons and crazy shit like that. So yeah. how did you get to that point? Well, I, I started wheelchair tennis. That was the first sport then because the opportunity was there. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I probably played that for off and on like recreationally and, and partial competitiveness for probably about 15 years, 16 years. Wow. Um, it just stuck with me and I had a lot of good friends in the sport. So always somebody to hit with, which was nice. Mm. Um, and then after that, of course, skiing was, was a massive part of my life before. Uh, so I really want to know, is, is there something still available? I vaguely remembered when I was going up the chairlift at Sunshine Village one day that there was these guys coming down on these little sit sled things. Mm. And I didn't know what it was. I didn't know it was a disabled sport. I thought maybe it was a new thing because at the time, snowboarding was still very new. Um, this is like early 1990, <laughs> right? So yeah. it's, I thought maybe this is a new, new toy. Um, didn't really think much of it. And then when, after my accident, I reflected back and like, yeah, those guys were on sit skis. That's what it was. So I started doing my research and, and realized, um, that sort of thing does exist. So it's a, a fiberglass seat with a motorcycle shock underneath it. Um, your feet are kind of out in front of you and you all sit on top of one regular downhill ski. And, uh, instead of the poles for pole planting, the poles you use for sit skiing, um, work like a crutch. So around your forearm, there's a band, you hold the handle. Um, and then on the very end of your pole is a, another ski tip, which will flip up. And that allows you to push yourself around and to lift up on the chairlifts or mm -hmm. they flip down when you're skiing. And that's what you reach out with for, uh, for kind of essentially your, your revised pole plant. Yeah. So uh, I've seen I those things. They're, they're pretty cool. Uh, I mean, they look super intimidating, but <laughs> that, you know, it looks amazing to see. And then that was it, right? I, I saw the sport and I, I saw some, there wasn't much video back then either. No internet, <laughs> not a lot, <laughs> but enough that, uh, enough that I could see it work. And I thought, wow, that's, that's pretty awesome. So yeah. I had found out about an adaptive program in Ellicottville, New York at Holiday Valley. Uh, the American programs were much more developed because the push from the Paralyzed Veterans Association since, since Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. um, so they had a lot more structure in their programs and equipment available. I went to them and it was, uh, again, nice life-changing day, but also a heartbreaking day. Mm. Just because the assessment process, you know, they initially looked at me and they said, with your level of paralysis, you won't be able to control the sit ski. You have to be at least a, a T6 and have just your upper abs to give you more core stability. Um, right. We're going to put you in something called the bi-ski. So a bi-ski is a similar body position, but you don't have the big shock and you have two very short uh, skis underneath you. So you can never be independent on the chairlift because you're so low to the ground. Mm. Um, and you always have somebody behind you because you can't really ski a normal downhill line. It's not designed to go fast in that way. It's just designed more to get you out and, and have a good day. So someone, like, so someone behind yeah. you, like, Con, like controlling stuff? Well, or? they would, they would have straps. So obviously a, a accomplished skier goes behind you. They would go into a snowplow position mm -hmm. and they would, they would hold the tethers they're called or the straps. And, uh, they help to control your speed because mm -hmm. on a sit ski, you can't do a snowplow to slow down. 
So the only way you can slow down is when you actually learn to turn and edge a little bit, yeah. check some speed. So initially they, they have that as a safety precaution and, and help you control. But they did their assessment of me and they said, no, we're, we're not going to put you in here. We want to make sure you have a good day. And yeah. I said, I'm not here to have a good day. I'm here to learn how to ski. <laughs> so I, there was a gentleman who had a roll of duct tape. And I said, can we just try, just wrap that duct tape around the highest point of the backrest and around my trunk, like up as, as high as you can go, which was around just below the nipples of my chest. So it really fastened me into that sit ski. Right. But what that did was I was attached to it. So now with my arms, I was able to balance. Um, oh, cool. So my learning curve was a little bit longer than, than maybe some most people with, with more trunk function. But uh, after my second year, I, I purchased my own sit ski and I was confident enough that I could get to the hill, take the sit ski, which is 30, 40 pounds, uh, out of the trunk, carry it to the chair, to the, where the ski racks are, click it all together, transfer from my wheelchair into it, strap myself in, push to the chairlift, go up a chairlift, get off safely. Cause that's the most dangerous part. Usually most crashes are in the chairlift, not so much skiing anymore. Yeah. Um, and then, and then be able to come down the hill. So at that two year mark, I, it was, that was a massive, massive accomplishment to, to be able to do all those things. You yeah. know, they're, they're, they're petty things. When I was walking, you didn't think about it. you park in the parking lot, you throw your skis over your shoulder, you walk to the resort and you buy your ticket and you go up and it's a normal day. But that day was very different. Yeah. So, Huge. Yeah. Mon so monumental, you know? Yeah. And skiing still, it's still a big part of my life. And I'm excited now because my daughter has just gotten into skiing for two years now. Oh, cool. She's getting better. And, and we actually have days where we're able to go out alone, you know, ride a chairlift together, her and I, um, I had done a lot with the sport. I had done racing over the years, uh, a couple downhill courses. So I've gone, you know, close to hundred kilometers an hour. I've done some big air jumps up probably over 70 feet. Some of the biggest ones in the sit ski I've been in Jesus. Canada magazine. Yeah. So it's, uh, the, the sport stuck with me and it, yeah. it's kind of, it's kind of been, it's kind of been a big part of my identity too, certainly early on. Cause I'm, you know, my brother and my siblings are like, Oh, you know, rich can still ski. Mm. So I can still yeah. be that guy. I can still be that guy. You jump. You did a seventy foot jump. I'll send the photo, and you can uh, you can paste it. Yeah, in. fuck yeah, man. That shit's crazy. Yeah. Seventy yeah. feet. I mean, even on normal skis, that's an it's an insane jump. Like I've done little jumps on my snowboard, but yeah. seventy feet is huge. I had done some jumps, and then I um, can't remember the name of the guy, but one of the one of the writers for Ski Canada magazine said, we, we heard about some of the things you're doing. Um, we'd like to come out and, and take some pictures of you in the park. So they did. They picked me up. We drove up to Blue Mountain. We went to the snowboard park. And they said, well, would you want to do this one? It's a little bigger than what I've done, but okay. You know, once the cameras yeah. are there, it's like, okay, how bad can it be? Showtime. <laughs> so showtime. So we did a jump. And it felt good. We did it, you know, five or six more. And they said, this is another one over here. These kids are hitting. It looks like a, a little bigger, but smooth. You want to try that? And the thing with the sit ski, and also when you're skiing with other kids that are crazy in that, that snowboard park, you know, they're, yeah. they're, 14, they're 14, 15 years old. I think I was 33 or 35 at the time. Uh, and me in my sit ski, I'm just I'm, I'm maybe 190 pounds and my sit ski is 40. So my acceleration yeah. down a ski hill is a little bit faster than theirs. So they showed me where they started and I started from the same point. And I realized the runoff or the run up to this jump 
uh, there was no room to turn. Mm, so to when, slow I, down. When, I, when I hit the jump, I actually, I over jumped and I just, just barely caught a little bit of landing. Um, that's why Jesus. I went so far. Probably should have been only about 45 or 50 feet. Right. <laughs> but hey, <laughs> now you got that story, you know. <laughs> yeah, was, and they asked, what do, you, do you want to do it again? That was such a good one. I'm like, no, 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 no. That was it. <laughs> I landed. It was, I'm yeah. not that one was that one was pushing it a little bit you know yeah but that's well, we insane photos. Yeah. yeah yeah i'd love to see that um that's epic and that, yeah and then you know after that you, you're now doing like marathons and um you know cycling marathons and swimming stuff and all you know uh, amazing stuff yeah a lot of different things i, I paddled i paddled a canoe across lake ontario and in, a, in a, a race um across the lake from niagara and lake to toronto uh, like you said, I've done many road races, five, 10 K probably done maybe 10 marathons or so. Um, I got into triathlon early on, started with duathlon because swimming was always a big, a big obstacle for me without my trunk. I, I didn't know how to swim. I, I could never do front mm. crawl. And then with a little bit of research and another friend that got into it, uh, he shared some knowledge about the wetsuit and, and how that's so key. Mm. So the wetsuit gives you the buoyancy, the but buoyancy. then we had yeah. custom, custom wetsuits. So instead of individual sleeves for each leg, um, mine was more like a merman. So one zipper up from my toes to my, to my neck. Um, so everything gets bound together. So my legs are in one kind of tube together mm. and the wetsuit gives me the flotation to be level on my stomach and then having my legs together, like a, like a log in, in the, in the water. Um, just with momentum of moving my, my arms, I found I was able to actually rotate and breathe so I could do front crawl again. Hmm. And that, that was just, it was after I did the Ironman, half Ironman, sorry, that I, I figured out. Because for the half Ironman, I did backstroke because that's all I could do. And then a week later, I, I figured out the front crawl and did oh, another cool. race in Ottawa. <laughs> so wait, great. So I, beat, I beat the guy who beat me in the, uh, the half iron man because i was doing front crawl finally so now that's cool so you're like yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so wait so what do you do for the running bit well so use a, a racing wheelchair okay so racing wheelchair um, most people now will, will go really tight onto their knees in a very bent forward position so you're aerodynamic so your your head is almost level with your your bum mm -hmm. um and uh, it's three wheels, two wheels in the back, one way out in front. And, uh, that one wheel out in front is in a locked position because your speeds are about anywhere from 25 to on the downhill, 70 kilometers an hour. Right. So it's pretty quick. Yeah. Um, but for your back, the back wheels, instead of, you know, everyday wheelchair has, you have your tires and you have a push rim, you grab mm -hmm. the push rim to push. And it's like the gears on a bike. You go to a smaller push rim or a smaller gear, you're going to be able to, to go faster because the, the speed of it rotating is, is slower as you go closer to the center. Right. So putting a smaller push rim on a racing chair, and then you wear specially padded gloves, you actually punch down and, and hit the push rim really hard and then snap mm. with your thumb on the bottom. So it's very technical. Um, but it was a cool sport that, cool. that allowed me to go out in, in the warmer months and do speed. And then socially, you know, like I said, I started with five and 10 K races. So, around the Niagara area. They have the grape, grape and wine festivals, you know, yeah. Beamsville, strawberry festivals. They always have these five tape, five and 10 K runs. So it introduced me to the sport, the fun to be social. And, you know, you go to these environments and, and it's still like that today where these environments, the athletes that are there have so much respect for you. 
um, they don't feel, they don't really feel bad for you. They're like just great for you for being here and, and competing. Yeah, for sure. And then when they see, and then when they see you go and they have a hard time keeping up with you, yeah. <laughs> then that, that bar goes up even higher. And yeah, definitely. And that's what I love about athletics. You know, it's one of the few venues where I get to be on, on almost a level plane. And in some respects now I do uh, adapted E mountain, mountain biking. Mm. So I have E assist. So the climb on the mountain bikes. Now I have no problem keeping up with any friends with legs Yeah, and, and the downhills, you know, it's, I usually have more courage. So they, they struggle the whole time. And it's nice being the guy that people try and really hard to keep up with. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, I'm <laughs> sure that, that was you originally, like in the beginning, you know, you were also, yeah. if you're a super athletic person, it comes with a sense of competitiveness as well. Um, yeah. And that's not a bad thing. I don't think. Uh, have, so have you suffered any injuries from all these sports? <laughs> Fortunately, uh, no. I mean, a okay. little bit of overuse in the shoulders. I, I, I just turned 50. Yeah. So I've been doing this 29 years and there's a little bit of wear and tear, but, um, I think the one thing that's probably kept me healthy is the fact that I've done so many different types of sports. Mm. You know, I have a lot of friends that they find one sport, they're passionate about it and they stick with it. But just that one repetition movement, uh, particularly for the shoulders and the elbows and the wrists, you know, if it's jarring type movements, you're, you're going to do damage. Right. Um, but I think because I've always mixed it up and, and I, I did a lot of rowing as well. I uh, went to the world championships for that in Spain. Uh, as Canada's wow. first adapted scholar in the sport. Um, cool. Yeah, it was, it was great. It was, it was cool. But I mean, that sport and, and the cycling sports, you know, had a lot of push and pull mm. movement. So the, the pull really strengthens your back and the back of your shoulders and the biceps, the opposite muscles to what you're using to push your wheelchair every day, where you're, you're using the front. Mm -hmm. of your shoulder and your pecs and your triceps for extension. So always having a, a sport that kind of was yeah. the opposite of the other movements I was doing. You know, it, it kind of gave me a, a whole body strengthening, conditioning workout. Yeah, that's uh, amazing. And so do you incorporate that kind of stuff now, you know, with your clients as a, because you're, you're a, just for anyone, I guess, if we haven't mentioned it. So you're now a, a recreational therapist and you have your own, um, center, it's called NeuroCore, and you help you know rehab people who have been through um, any kind of um, neurological injury or otherwise, and uh, and so you you know part of your work is now to give people exercise and introduce them to the life that you've learned to live, and you know how fulfilling it can be, and how it's not the end of the road, and that you know it. it I mean, it, it it certainly takes your life on a detour, but um, you know, there's so much that's available now, especially these days. Like, as you say, 20 years ago, it was a different world, right? 20 years ago, if you wanted to go fast, that's why you got into road racing. Yeah. Um, there wasn't, there wasn't any other sport for speed. You know, it was a couple of years later that they started designing hand cycles. Mm. And then of course, being an avid cyclist pre-injury, um, when I saw that, wow, you know, they actually have hand bikes now. I had to get one. I had to, <laughs> yeah. there was no question. I, I'd, I'd mortgage anything just to get a hand cycle. Um, and, and that's what I did. I got the first bike that they designed and, and, and I've never looked back. So even though I've done all these other sports, um, cycling has always been my, just my consistent go-to. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I still, I just, I value the, the speed. I value the freedom. I value the distance that you can go on the rides, um, yeah. and just explore, get lost, you know? Just, just go. Yeah. Um, 
It's amazing. And, you know, you forget, one forgets how difficult that is to do with just your arms because, yeah. you know, you kind of like rely on your legs so much that you don't think about it that much. But it's like, well, I mean, if you just try and if, an, if the average person just tries to hold a plank for, you know, one or two minutes, I mean, you're going to start dying, basically. <laughs> Never mind, you know, doing 100 or 150 kilometer cycles with just your arms being the primary thing. I mean, that's huge, right? Yeah, it, it, takes, it takes a while to build up, I think, the strength. Yeah. And, and, but again, fortunately, technology now is, is so advanced that, uh, you know, for those types of distances, the bike that I ride, I pretty much lay down on my back on the road. So my feet are straight out in front of me, mm. which means I'm, I'm so aerodynamic. Um, you know, the top of my head is less than two feet off the ground. So right. I'm, I'm literally like a pencil going through the air. So in that sense, it, it allows me just to keep up with a lot of people using their legs until you get to the hills. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> the, hills, the hills, they get out of their saddle. They use their body weight. You know, they have a few different options to climb with your legs, but with the hand bike, you don't come off the seat. You're still laying there. You're using the same muscles. You don't have any body weight behind your push. Like it's, it's slowing you down. So the uphills, you really feel the grind. And, and that's, that's where it's tougher to be on a level plane, but mm -hmm. certainly the flats and, and going downhill, it's, it's, yeah. it's great to ride with anybody. So what's the mechanism of a hand cycle? Like what's the movement? How does it work? Is it like, like a kind of swimming movement? No. So um, yeah, most people think it's, it's like pedaling a bike. Um, and yeah. there's only a couple people I've ever known to ride that way. The majority of riders, um, 99.9%, two hands together. So your, your hand pedals are, are kind of in front of you. Mm. Um, your, your crank is in front of you. So imagine a bicycle flipped upside down and then turned around. Okay. So instead of your back wheel being the drive wheel, the chain goes to the front. Right. And instead of the derailleur hanging down underneath your, your cassette of your front wheel, it's up in the air because the chain's coming back at you this way. So then you're riding, um, you're riding in front of you, kind of just oh, above see. your chest. Both hands together gives you a lot more power. Um, otherwise, if you're trying to ride like this, you're going to shake and the bike's going to shake. Mm. Two hands together keeps it st stable and you're able to use larger muscle groups like full chest, pecs, triceps, and your back and all that stuff. Right. So it, it's, it's, it's very smooth on the joints versus something like a racing chair. And that's why cyclists can, can ride until, you know, well into their seventies, eighties. And there's guys still competing that are like late sixties. Um, yeah, it's, it's great because it's, it's also, it's not only strength, but it's, it's the conditioning. So you, it's the most bang for your buck. Yeah. That makes sense. Right. Because if you were doing like full shoulder movements, like that's going to take a big toll um yeah. over a long period of time yeah so you ride with a, a high cadence you try and keep a higher cadence so usually about 90 95 strokes or strokes per minute rotations per minute um which is very high spinning with the hands especially on the climbs um the bike has what 12 12 12 12 gears no, I was gonna say, I'm trying to count the gears, but I've got, oh. I've got a number of different bikes and I've just swapped them out now for an upcoming trip. And I'm trying to remember how many gears are on the bike. It's got the electronic shifting mm. uh, and there's 11 gears on, on most of the, the road bikes. Okay. So you've got, you've got a, and now they use the mountain bike technology on our hand cycles for the road. 
So we, we have uh, a bigger range of gears to go up and down the, the hills and the climbs and stuff. That's so the, cool. technology, the technology now today just really makes it a lot more comfortable mm. um, and, and safer for the long distances. Yeah. And so do you steer with the same like handles that you're holding? Yeah, the whole front fork mechanism kind of pivots. So mm. while you're riding, yeah, you would, you would just lean it left or right, and that turns the front wheel. So because you're in that long body position on that style of bike, your turning radius is, is pretty big. Mm. But uh, so to turn around, it might be a three or, or seven-point turn uh, if you want to turn around on a trail or a, a small road. But for, for most riding, it's, it's just straight ahead, long distance, and you're fine. You make any oh, corner. So you can reverse, actually. Uh, no, well, the only way you reverse is you reach the back wheels or you push uh, off the ground itself. Okay, because yeah. you, you said like a three-point turn. I was like, but you got to reverse for that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But that makes sense, right? You, you adapt and you just do that bit manually. Um, but that's awesome, man. And, you know, your work now is, is a lot, as we were saying, like it's a lot of helping people going through the same stuff, right? Yeah, um, yeah. It's, it's, so that's what I did. I, at the hospital, I worked for five years as a recreation therapist. So I didn't really mention after, after the accident, mm. as I got, as I got into the sport and as I, as I sat, spent more time sitting in the wheelchair, uh, I realized sitting still causes me so much pain. I just, hmm. I can't sit still. If I, if I, when I went back to school and I was in the lectures, you know, one or two hours a day, I was just the amount of pain in my back, just, just firing through. Um, I had to keep moving. I had to keep moving. And so not only for my own activity, um, but as I got into more sport and, and I said, this is good, not only for me, but everybody I, I saw participating, it changed their life. Mm-hmm. And so I decided at that point, I wanted to get into a career, something recreation. I didn't know what, uh, I was restricted to which school I could go to because of my living, um, accommodations and trying to find another accessible place. So Brock university had a great therapeutic or sorry, recreation and leisure program. So I did that and graduated and then continued into Georgian College for a postgraduate therapeutic recreation program, which is more focused on hospital type settings and special populations. Hmm. Um, so when I graduated from there, I, I worked at Toronto Rehab Lyndhurst Center, which is Toronto's and Canada's one of the largest Canada's Canada's largest spinal cord rehab centers. Hmm. Um, and that's that's where I, I just I transferred my skills and, and my knowledge and introduced people as much as I could to the things that helped me in my life. Uh, yeah. and a lot of people, you know, a lot of people weren't athletes before they you'd approach them with a bike and say, look, we're going to go out and ride this bike. And like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm good, man. I didn't like riding before. Just don't worry about it. But you force them, you take them out. You're like, come on, we're going to do this. We're going to make it part of your physio program. Your physio is going to come out. We're going to get the transfer on and you'll be fine. They do one ride and they're like, okay, this is good. Yeah. You know, again, it's, it's a different, it's a different mentality when you're spending your days sitting in a wheelchair or you have the option to go rip on a bike somewhere. Like it's, it's eye-opening. It's, even if you were an athlete before you, you find the love in it and it changes your life. Yeah. I'm no well, doubt. Right. And that physical activity is so important just generally speaking. Right. And especially so if you're, if your movement's even more limited, right. You can't, you're, you know, you're, no, you're no longer moving about the same way. So as you say, you could be seated for 17 hours of the day, like to be able to go and do something uh, that's athletic and fun and it's outdoors and you're getting fresh air and exercise and it gets your blood flowing and 
you know, and your and the endorphins and all good things come from it, right? Absolutely, yep. And it's just a matter of trying to see it for yourself. Like that's as you say, you got to kind of push people to be like, no, just just do it. You'll see. Oh yeah, yeah. You're initially you're not the the most popular guy at first because why is he pushing me so much to do this stuff? I don't want to do it. It's not taking no for an answer. Yeah. But then you realize, you know what? It's 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 all good. It's all good. Just try it. You know. And if and if the cycling isn't your activity, there's going to be something you love, and that's that's what a rec, that's what a recreation therapist does. You try and find some activity that they, they're either passionate about before or, or something that can, you know, ignite a, a spark of life in them now. Yeah. Um, it could be a craft. It could be art. It could be uh, any kind of activity. It could be social outings, you know, going to the mall for some people was, was that, that thing. So. Right. Because as you know, your life changes and there's that you reach that point where, you have to make decisions to start doing things and trying things again when you don't actually have to, but by not doing so, it's going to come at a cost to you, right? Which you don't perhaps realize at the time, but that, you know, someone like you as a recreation therapist, you know, that like, well, one of the parts about living a fulfilled life is doing things and not just sitting. And so it's a hugely important role um, in a person's rehab and also just to give people hope, right? And, and yeah. a sense of fulfillment, like it, it's enormous. And as you say, it's custom to the person of like, well, what what's going to make you happy? Um, or at least bring you some happiness. Maybe it's not going to make you happy, but it, it brings it, those positive elements back into your life. After something that's, you know, taken a lot away, you can start reintroducing these things and really giving value and adding back to people's lives and, um, I mean, yeah, it must be a hugely rewarding career for you. Absolutely. It's, it's, uh, again, it goes back to my early days of rehab too. It's when you're working with these people and it, it just puts everything in context. Uh, I feel blessed for the life I have. I feel blessed for the resources I, I have in place in my life now. You know, like we didn't, we didn't really go into the cost for a lot of these things, but right. that's the number one, that's the number one barrier for people, uh, is the cost of equipment. And, and I was certainly one of those people that I didn't have the money uh, to, to buy any of this stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I was fortunate that I had a community group in Niagara Falls kind of organize a fundraising event. And they raised a little bit of money, which was a, a pool that I could go into to initially buy um, nice. my racing chair. And then from, from my first bike till, boy, how many bikes have I had now? I think 11 in, in 29 years. Wow. Um, it's all been a sponsorship from the manufacturers because I was always that guy that took the bikes everywhere. So mm-hmm. it wasn't about me riding. It was, who am I going to introduce this to today? So I showed the bikes more than most of the sales reps ever could. Right. Uh, and, and they saw value in that. So they always gave me the bikes, the newest bikes to show and for people to trial. So That's awesome. obviously the advantage, the advantage in my life was it just opened a door, which I couldn't afford otherwise, you know, the cost yeah. of a, a hand cycle, they started about seven thousand, and and we'll go up to over twenty thousand dollars. Jesus, our tennis chair is about the same. It starts at about four thousand, and we'll go up to ten. Um, my racing chair, the same. You know, starts at about five, and we'll go up to about nine thousand. That's huge. So any any sport, if you have an interest in, in an activity uh, with a disability, you have to factor in that cost of 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 getting that equipment and there isn't a lot of resource to borrow Mm -hmm. and it's like a shoe. It really has to fit you properly 
um, to give you the postural support, safety issues for your skin, um, and then a certain level of performance, you know? So it has to be custom, custom. It really does. Wow. That, yeah, I mean, that must be a huge barrier. Um, if, if, you know, just a single, you know, unit is, you know, could be north of five grand, just it's, I mean, yeah, I, I don't, I suppose, yeah, I mean, like road bikes, professional road bikes are, you know, pretty expensive, but you like, you don't have to get one of those. You can go to, you can go to Walmart and buy a bike for a hundred or $200 and have the same amount of fun. Maybe you won't be competitive, but you can do that, you know? Right. Right. So yeah, it's that, a huge difference. You don't have those options anymore. Yeah. You know, not, not a big used market either um, for a lot of the stuff. So, so having, having somebody in the community um, and now yeah. over the years, there, there are a few groups. So there's Ontario wheelchair sport association, Parasport Ontario, you know, they have now acquired a pool of equipment, which they loan out. So mm -hmm. at a very, very affordable, like $20 a month, mm. um, might not be exactly what you need and want, but at least it's an introduction to an activity you have interest in. Um, right. So you can try and just do stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, and it's great. To, it's always great to see that there are organizations that are trying to do things like that you know, whether it's in this area or anywhere else, it's just like, how can we help people have better lives, you know, yeah. given the conditions. Um, but yeah, that, that's amazing, man. And, and so your, your clinic is called NeuroCore, right? Yeah. Um, and, and that's what you do. You help people. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, you know, we, we started out with a lot of interest just in spinal cord injury. We thought maybe that would be our focus, but um, we've been around now, what, 11, 11 years. Hmm. Um, and we have a team of 30 people now. So we've grown from my wife and I to, to a team of 30. So wow. we, we see all, all different types of disciplines, all different types of injuries and disabilities. Uh, spinal cord is just a small part of it, but the ones that I'm able to work with that, that reward is there and the life changing still happens, but it's incredible how just even having some of that equipment for other people who have never seen it before, how it sparks interest and, and, and you know, it builds support uh, as people get more educated about it. And, and some of these people never would have thought maybe they don't even need a hand cycle. You know, I have a lot of able-bodied friends that just love to go try this stuff out because it's so cool now. You know, yeah. uh, I, I tell people with, with skiing, well, that's the one sport because a lot of people still haven't seen what a sit ski is mm -hmm. and, and, when I go to the, to the resorts or I go and I'm waiting in a lift line, you know, often I just ripped past people coming down the hill, right? Just blow by them. They're blown away. <laughs> yeah. They catch up with me at the bottom and the kids are like, dad, I want one of those, <laughs> you know, All a right. guy in a wheelchair shouldn't be the guy that people are pointing to saying, I yeah. want to be like him, you know, they don't know, but that's just, the technology is so good now um, that you can perform at a level that, that yeah, people are just, they're fascinated. You know, that's amazing. Away. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's good. That's epic, man. Well, listen, Rich, thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate it. I, I've enjoyed this conversation. I think it's, you know, really important to just hear these amazing stories and how, you know, you can just be an athlete and, and live your life and how, you know, some, something like a spinal cord injury doesn't have to be the end for you. Um, and, I, you know, it, it's hugely important just to share this stuff. And so I thank you very much. Um, I will put links to, you know, those sites that you mentioned if people want to get more info on it um, and to NeuroCore. 
and you know to your your stuff as well on facebook and whatever but yeah man i, I really appreciate your time no same shane it's always a pleasure talking to you man and uh, opening people's eyes right that's the most important thing 100 percent. bring a little positivity into the world yeah for sure for sure all right we'll speak soon take care